Welcome to another fantastic episode of Dragon Talk. Yay! Ordinarily, you would be hearing Shelly Mazenoble's voice joining mine, Greg Tito. Uh, but today, uh, it is just me doing our intros today and speaking to our guest, Jack Emmert, a CEO in charge right now of Dimensional Inc. Games, uh, which is part of Daybreaks Games in Austin. Uh, in you know, they uh, facilitate the DC Universe Online as well as develop a, developing a brand new action, massively multiplayer online game, otherwise known as an MMO out there. Uh, so yeah, can't wait to speak to him uh, and learn more about what's happening at Dimensional Inc. Games. Previously, uh, you know, in a previous life when I was a game journalist that we last spoke at, I think, PAX West, I want to say 2010, 2011, around there. Uh, so I'm excited to uh, reconnect with uh, him and see what has been going on. Uh, in the meantime, I hope everyone is having a wonderful summer, staying uh, safe and socially distant, of course, but let's uh, celebrate all the fun stuff that we can do online through discussing things like Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, there is a wonderful Mythic Odysseys of Theros book arriving at your local game stores and at bookstores and at online retailers July 21st. By the time you listen to this, it will be, or it could possibly be, physically in your hands. Uh, it is a fantastic book full of uh, classical uh, fantasy set and based and inspired around Greek myths, but also the world building from the Magic the Gathering team on the plane of Theros. So there is uh, new races, new monsters, new class options, uh, as well as uh, character options for an epic, uh, along the lines of an odyssey, right? That's why it's called Mythic Odysseys, right? You can, you can be Odysseus, you could be Aeneid, uh, or you could be in your own Aeneid uh, as Aeneas, uh, I'm now showing my my classical knowledge. Uh, it does not run too deep, but I have been playing a lot of Assassin's Creed Odyssey, so I know everything about about those things now. Right? No, not really. Uh, but it's super fun, and I I've been personally waiting to get into the physical book, uh, although it has been available digitally on D and D Beyond Roll Twenty Fantasy Grounds. Uh, since June 2nd, so many of you have already seen a lot of this content uh, and perhaps even played some games using it. I, myself, am, uh, like I said, excited to get the physical book because there's just so much awesomeness uh, that comes from cracking open and smelling, I know it sounds weird, but smelling the pages of, uh, of, of, a, of a new D&D supplement uh, and getting inspired therein. Uh, I don't know if you know this, but we put little bits of fragrance uh, into each new D&D book that we make, so they all smell a little bit different. No, I'm just kidding. We don't really do that, but we should. That would be a really great idea. I'm going to talk to the uh, design wizards on that one and see if we can make... Uh, say like Ghosts of Saltmarsh should have been smelling like like brine. And what would what would a mythic Odysseys of Theros smell like? Would it smell like the uh, uh, you don't know I don't know tahini? I don't know. <laughs> I'm leaving it up to you. Funny thing about uh, this book, uh, Mythic Odysseys of Theros, is that the code name for it, which is something we use when we refer to a project before it has an official title, but then also so that official title does not uh, you know, make it into conversation and potentially get leaked out to someone before we announce it. The code name for it was Falafel. 
which, you know, if you think about it, makes perfect sense. Um, so maybe that's what it smells like. It smells like a deliciously deep-fried falafel ball uh, full of tahini and um, uh, garlic. I don't know. It's delicious. That's all I know. There's a lot of fun stuff around uh, Mythic Odysseys of Theros, including some YouTube videos in which uh, members of the D&D team engage in mythic encounters with some of the big bads that are presented in there with their mythic actions in addition to their to their lair and monster actions. Uh, so those are high-level uh, play, which we don't get to show off too often. Check those out on our YouTube page. Um, and uh, hopefully you are going to get one of the covers of Mythic Odysseys of Theros this month. Um, There's a standard cover, which I love, uh, but the alternate cover that you can only get from uh, your own local game store uh, is also awesome, and it's really evocative. It's got bright colors on it, so I hope you're able to pick that up from your local game store and give a little bit of love to them uh during this this quarantine uh they don't get as much foot traffic although many of uh have been able to develop ways that you can order your games and your books ahead of time and pick them up uh in a safe way with everybody wearing masks and all that so hopefully that is happening and you can support them in these times and then play some games online using our virtual tabletops out there or just through video conferencing and enjoy uh what's going on in theros make it happen uh, there's also a wonderful, fun uh, product coming out for you. It is something that we like to refer to as Scooby-Doo! Exclamation point. Betrayal at Mystery Mansion. That will be available June 21st, 4th, 4th. And it is a, uh, you know, betrayal uh, at House on the Hill format book uh, that is geared more towards family and kids uh, and there's lots of great ways that will make it available it you need to be you know, ages eight plus is the suggested but if you have a precocious child you might be able to uh, get them to play a little bit earlier three to five players 25 new haunts all based on uh, episodes and plots and movies and things you know you might remember from scooby-doo from the past uh, so check that out super fun way to engage with your family uh, during during this quarantine as we gear up for some spooky stuff happening uh, this Halloween. Uh, and we've got some more announcements along those lines coming from Dungeons & Dragons. We're working hard on a whole bunch of things, um, and including that is the Icewind Dale Rime of the Frost Maiden Adventure. We announced at D&D Live. Uh, it is a themed adventure uh, around uh, you know paranoia and uh, exploring a frozen wasteland uh, as well as the cultures of hardy survivors who live in the ten towns and the surrounding areas uh, trying to eke out an existence uh, in a harsh environment that is made even more harsh by uh, magic or something that has made um, you know an already cold environment much much more less forgiving and your adventurers must figure that out. Um, if you want some previews and want to figure out what's going on in Icewind Dale, I suggest you look at all of the videos that we've got posted online on our YouTube channel that's at Dungeons & Dragons, uh, the channel there on the YouTubes, um, from D&D Live, uh, and including games uh, with cast members of Game of Thrones, which we call D&D's Cast of Thrones, WWE superstars played with Jeremy Crawford. We had a group of comedians play with Kate Welch and uh, some amazing folks playing with Chris Perkins and uh, even more related products 
described in uh, some of the interview segments. Um, and if you are checking out the videos from D&D Live, I suggest you check out the Black AF side table panel. It's an hour and a half of uh, people of color discussing their experiences playing Dungeons and & Dragons and uh, engaging with the D&D community. It's not all awesome. Uh, they, they go through a lot of of terrible experiences that they've uh, gone through and how, despite all that, they feel Dungeons & Dragons has a lot to give to both their community as well as uh, the nation and world as a whole. And it is uh, a harrowing watch slash listen, but it is useful for all of us. And I really encourage you to uh, listen and, and internalize some of the messages from the people within those communities watching that and you'll feel... Um, you know, an array of emotions, but it ended with with hope uh, on how we can all improve and make Dungeons and Dragons feel as inclusive as it is. You know, because everyone as humans plays pretend. They all tell stories. It's something that is, you know, in some ways is what makes us human. Is what separates us from uh, the other forms of life here on this earth. And I really want that to be extended to all peoples and fans out there, uh, no matter what their background is. And uh, we can only do that by listening to them and, and making the change that we need to have happen in our own communities. So uh, check out all those videos. Get it hyped for uh, Icewind Dale, Rime of the Frost Waden, pick up Mythic Odysseys of Theros and or Scooby-Doo Betrayal at Mystery Mansion. And uh, give a listen to what's going to happen in this Lore You Should Know segment coming up right here. And we will be following up with our uh, interview with Jack Emmert, CEO of Dimensional Inc. Games, right after that. Welcome to another Lore You Should Know segment. I'm Greg Tito, and today I'm joined by Ari Levich. Hi, Ari. Yet again, hello. <laughs> the return. You are one <laughs> of the returned, aren't you? <clears throat> um, and uh, today on this segment where we go into little bits of uh, Dungeons & Dragons lore uh, to use potentially in your game or just because it's really fun to know all this awesome stuff, uh, we're going to dive some more into Mythic Odysseys of Theros uh, and some of the deities and themes, uh, you know, uh, displayed and uh, present in that book. And uh, Ari is here to join us because he worked not only on the uh, uh, Mythic Odysseys of Theros, but uh, designing some of this stuff for the magic, uh, Magic the Gathering world building um, in the early 2010s, right? That was around then that you were doing that work? Or is it late, late 2000s? No, no, this was 2013 is when it came out, so... When I joined the team, this was the uh, the world that was where cards were being developed. When I came, when I got into the building, so nice. I got to do a lot of names and flavor text for uh, for the setting. Whereas, like Adam was was instrumental in doing the 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 heavy lifting of of the world building. Nice. All right. Cool. Well, it's awesome to see this you know eight or nine year journey that you're going yeah. on here, uh, uh, continuing with this work. Uh, and uh, for this segment, we're going to talk a little bit about Kara Metra, uh, who is, uh, actually, yeah, what is what is their domain uh, and so, how, how would you describe them? Yeah, so uh, Kara Metra is, is the god of the harvest. So you get a sense, even just from that, kind of that she's just going to be associated with agriculture. She's kind of where, like, the nexus of nature and civilization meet, right? So she's associated with the domestication of animals. She's de- associated with with family and um, 
even like, she's also the kind of uh, god of orphans or orphans. She looks at, she would oh, look really? after orphans. Um, she has a special place in her in kind of her heart uh, for orphans. Um, she's also uh, associated with the defense of one's kind of home, of the the knowledge that you know things beyond civilization are still a danger and that there's a reality there. Um, in terms of personality, she's she's a little d- different than other gods in that I mean, she has relationships with the Farah. She has respect for some, some of these other gods of civilization, but she also has a close relationship with Nylea, this god of nature. But she tends to keep herself removed from the kind of intra-god scheming and politics. She is She values kind of... Uh, she values harmony and community, and so that's very much at odds with with the kind of pettiness that kind of uh, the other gods tend to be obsessed with. Um, she is also she's worshipped everywhere um, because you know she's associated with things like fertility and uh, and obviously you know having a good harvest is important for everybody. Uh, so she's hmm. she is worshipped everywhere, but she has a special she has a the people of Setessa, this kind of this polis that is uh, situated in the uh, completely in in the woods. It's basically like the uh, an analog for the Amazons, and mm. uh, it, this is a polis essentially of almost entirely women. And uh, Karametra is held in particularly high regard uh, in Setessa, the same way that Ephara is held in high regard in Miletus, or Eroas is held in high regard in Akros. But there's this association with Karametra and Satessa. Um, she's she's an she's an interesting one in that when she is uh, when she is shown when she is depicted, she's often depicted in this this throne that is made of grapevines that kind of all emerge from these clay jugs to kind of form this lattice behind her, and she so she sits on this throne. And she's always associated with her companion, which is a giant sable, and uh, which is interesting. There are in the book *Mythic Odysseys of Theros*. There is a creature. There are these creatures called anvil rots, and these are these magically um, uh, animated uh, creatures made of metal. And one of these is a bronze sable, and bronze sables are associated with Karametra, and they serve as these uh, guardians of her temples. And a sable and so, is a is a big cat. A sable is kind of like a, um, it's a big rodent, almost like a, a, oh. an ermine or like a, uh, like a Capybara. weasel type thing. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. So, and so these are things, these are symbols that are often associated, uh, uh, associated with her. My favorite thing about Karametra is one of the festivals, which is the, uh, the blessing of the beasts. And the blessing of the beast is this thing where it, it's basically there to honor uh, domesticated animals. Uh, so you might have like you know your cattle, you might have you know you know sheep, and uh, even the cats. As it mentions, the cats that watch over the the, uh, the granaries. Um, <laughs> that it, it, during this festival, it said that uh, you know that an- these domesticated animals might get the the ability to speak, and so you can communicate with them, and you can you could. Offer your respect to them and, and offer them blessings as well. Oh, that's super cool! Yeah, yeah. So having again, just watched Charlotte's kind of sorry, go ahead. Having just watched Charlotte's Web with my kids, I think oh, uh, they would get a huge kick out of uh, uh, you know playing in a campaign where uh, this this holiday happens, and you're like, oh yeah, now you can go 
talk to the animals and let them, you know, uh, hear their grievances, perhaps. And, yeah. Uh, change. Yeah, that's great. I, you know, the, I love the, the idea of wandering into a a you know a village that is that is having this kind of uh, this festival, and you have no idea what's going on, and just animals are talking and greeting you like top of the morning kind of right. thing. It's just. <laughs> And those just are your your quest givers for that uh, yeah. for that campaign, almost right? Like, oh, you got to go, you know, uh, help the barn be a little bit warmer uh, in at nighttime. What are you going to do yeah. about it? Yeah, that's great. Oh, I love it. Now, it's uh, good. Fun stuff. Uh, so yeah, so Karametros is an Karametra is an interesting like mash of a couple of 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 deities that I might be familiar with from from Greek uh, uh, storytelling. Like it feels like it's like an Artemis and a Hestia and a, a, the other uh, god of the goddess of the of the bounty kind of mashed yeah. together into something that feels very unique. And so it's interesting just to give you a little bit of insight into kind of magic world building and how they approach it. So they're insp- on one hand, like top down flavor wise inspired by Greek mythology, right? So you start with, you know, what are the Greek gods? Basically, what are the things that Greek culture cared about that would that would have gods associated with these things? The other thing to consider is that kind of bottom-up, mechanics-wise, magic always has to care about the five colors of magic, right? Right. So, like, you know, white, blue, black, red, green. And so, this Karametra in magic is associated with white and green. So they knew that all the gods are going to be associated with particular colors. So when they're carving up the attributes of these gods and, you know, the mashups, as, as you said, like how, how these gods are going to kind of come together for Theros, but still kind of cover a lot of the breadth of what the Greek pantheon did. Those are the considerations, right? So like they knew green and white mechanically means these things in magic. What's a god that would, that would mean that? And then what were some of the Greek influences that would inform that? That makes a lot of sense. Uh, but then, you know, while... Magic might be concerned with the color wheel. Dungeons and Dragons has uh, other things that they're concerned with, like classes and things like that. And in your description of Karametra, I could see you know druids and and rangers and and, and those type of classes really finding uh, a lot in common with uh, Karametra and her her domain. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, I think there are ways to spin, even if you wanted to play like an Oath of Ancients. Uh, mm. Paladin, like there are things yeah. you can do with that, which is interesting. Um, but yeah, you're absolutely on the right track of kind of what D and D kind of wants to do with a god like Karametra, and you know the types of characters that that might inspire for sure. What uh, what type of champions does uh, uh, you know come from Satessa or or our Karametra followers? Uh, I, I think that the, the champions of Karametra are the ones that are interested in in still preserving what human beings are able to do in nature. Um, and I, I think in a similar way that Afara would, you know, cares about protecting the polis from, you know, outside, you know, chaotic forces. I think if Farah does that for a more kind of, not just rural setting, but rural sensibilities and kind of pastoral sensibilities, um, things that might disrupt things like the harvest, things that might disrupt these, these reliable kind of keystone moments that happen in nature but benefit civilization are 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 things that might inspire or might get a, a uh, might get a champion out of that. Karametra, that makes sense. So yeah, let me ask Karametra. you this. Is there any uh you know, in our world there is sometimes depicted a conflict between urban and rural. Um does that exist in Theros? Does does Karametra and Afara have some kind of 
enmity or, or, or eternal conflict because of those two pushes and pulls, or do they, they work better together? So them less so, because there is a lot of overlap in, in the value of civilization between Karametra and Afara. But uh, Nylea, who is the god of god of essentially the wild, right? The god of the hunt, the god of of the untamed wilderness. She will have more at odds with Afara than Karametra kind of lives in this between space and shows that that these things are that this crossover is that humans and and uh, nature, nature can are coexist. not mutually exclusive. Yeah. Right. Okay, that makes sense. Uh, we'll have to talk more about Nylea because she sounds fascinating. But Nylea is awesome. <laughs> Uh, all right, awesome. Uh, so then, how does Eroes fit into uh, into this idea? So when uh, when I was on here last uh, or some time ago, we talked about Eroes and Mogus, and I was really emphasizing this na- this notion of these brothers, right? These the dual gods of war. The Mogus is this god of slaughter, and Eroes is this god of victory. And what that means for civilization for Eroes is that Eroes is the sense of because Eros is oftentimes this patron god of of military and kind of military order and and victory. There's the sense of human beings striving to first of all organize meaningfully, right? That, that's one of the first things that has to happen in a civilization is this gathering together under a common cause, but then also this striving to be better. Eros as this god of victory is also this patron god of athletes, uh, but it means that that. Wherever you are, you could do better. And there's a sense of pushing and pushing and pushing to 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 constantly improve. And so that's not necessarily relegated to civilization, but it's the sense of association with with soldiers and the sense of you know organizing in a way that's not like a mob or a, a horde, the way that the followers of Mogus would just kind of mob up in bloodlust. That there is this sense of, you know, uh, Teamwork? There's a sense of honor that comes with a rowist. Honor is a construct. Honor is not a thing that just that exists in nature. It's very much a human, a human ideal. And so a rowist embodies that. That makes sense. Um, but then also the idea like, you know, of, of coming together, like you can't do that without uh, some type of code, right? And sometimes it's a code of right. honor or anything like that. But you have to have some kind of agreed axioms before you are able to kind of organize at all. Right, right. So I think that's absolutely true. I, I, I imagine that you know in Akros, who are the kind of these most renowned uh, soldiers, almost akin to um, Sparta. Mm-hmm. Right, that's it's an analog for Sparta. Yeah, as you can imagine, among them, there is a proper way to fight. That there is a dis- that if you do it incorrectly, you would be fighting dishonorably. Um, that's not that's there. We don't have any strictures of that. There's no like. You know the tenets of you know a Crowan warfare or anything, but I could imagine that if that was a thing, that Eroes's name would be be kind of invoked in that sense. That makes sense. Does uh, you know Karametra or any of the other gods that we discussed uh, recently? You know, do they do they have conflicts with Eroes? Like, does this sometime having this idea of of victory and honor and and things like that? Does that go against some of what you know the the other god champions might be? putting forth yeah i mean eros is, is is a person or is a person eros is a god essentially whose followers might be like action is very important to eros like stepping up to do the right thing 
in the in, even in the face of danger, especially in the face of danger, right? It's easy to kind of recoil when it when things are tough. But yeah. what that could also mean that action could be taken recklessly, and so good intent of going out to fight on behalf of you know a polis might have you know unforeseen consequences. You might you know attract the ire of an even greater threat that might then kind of put put the polis or whoever you were fighting for in peril. So it's the idea of fighting for a cause, but also that might be tempered by by leadership. And so, you know, warriors who are just kind of unleashed to go fight, well, fighting isn't the end, right? You're fighting for something. You're trying to achieve something. And just fighting for its own sake is not... I, I think other gods might see might see the perhaps the physical challenges of combat as as unnecessary whereas Aroa sees that as the proving ground of who you are mm. and i think that ifara could probably have a good debate with Aroas about that that's kind of interesting i like that um and it brings me back to a point that that both you and adam have made about uh, uh theros in general is that Characters that you create and play with in this world don't necessarily have just one deity that they uh, adhere, you know, ideals that they adhere to. They could have multiple ones, and so you might have uh, someone who's a follower of Karametra and of Afara, and you know, have to try to get balance all those things within them, as well as uh, you know, uh, some of the others that we've discussed. And 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 the push and pull will come from people who all, all believe in these gods and, and uh, uh, have smaller or larger uh, overlap with all of their values and then you know, conflict can come there as far as, you know, hey, we're mostly on the same side, but also you're, about this specific thing, I'm more on, on uh, you right. know, uh, the polis' uh, you know, side. For and I, I think, I mean, that is something I want to emphasize. I, I can't emphasize that enough, where like, there's, there's a piety system in the book that, you know, where it says, like, you get all these different kind of rewards as you kind of gain a god's favor. A piety, gaining piety is not exclusive to one god. You can gain the favor of different gods. I mean, if Karametra is the god of harvests, like, and I tend, and I live in the, you know, in the middle of the polis, and I, I've never, you know, plowed a field in my life, it doesn't mean that I won't pay homage to, to have a good harvest. I want I, I will pay, I'll give tribute to Karabetra because I want the good harvest because that food that is being grown in fields will make its way to the polis. Like, people are aware of how these gods' domains intersect in their daily lives, which is why, particularly like gods of civilization, these are all kind of structures that if any of these pieces fall out, civilization can fall apart. And I don't know if people have that necessarily, that that awareness all the time, but when people worship gods in Theros, it's not just like, you chose that one god, and therefore that is your religion. The religion in Theros is polytheistic. There is a pantheon of gods that oversee different things. And you might favor certain gods over others if, you, if your life kind of touches that domain more than others. But you're never going to be like, that god doesn't exist. I believe in this god. Like that's not, that's not a thing. There's definitely an awareness that there are multiple gods here. And when... The time is correct to pay homage to that particular god. Most people would do that, um, and so now, it, as 
as characters and heroes become more and more powerful, they become more aware of the pettiness of of the gods and their schemes, which might make them turn their back on particular gods. But I think for most people on Theros, the reality is a polytheistic one. Which is, uh, you know, important to think about when you're building your characters or even in that world that it can, it can change and shift within the story as well. Like, Absolutely. oh, you know, I, I, maybe I, you know, hey, Karametra was cool at level one or two, but, you know, because of the actions uh, that Karametra might have taken in their lives, they might have more, uh, you know, uh, reverence for them versus others uh, as, as things go by. And as a dungeon master, it might be really fun to play with those changing, uh, uh, you know, beliefs over time. For sure. That's great. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you, Ari. Uh, this is uh, a great overview of many of the civilization gods uh, within Mythic Odysseys of Theros. Again, it is available now everywhere digitally. Uh, you can get it on D&D Beyond, uh, Roll20, Fantasy Grounds. Uh, but it will be available in game stores and uh, in, in a hardback form on July 21st. If you might even be able to pick it up from your local store right now listening to this, and I hope you do, uh, so that you can have some really fun, interesting stories within uh, the the Theros world, or just pull parts of this that we've been discussing and add them into your homebrew. I think that's also a really uh, important and valid way to, to to interact with this stuff, right? Excellent. Awesome. Yeah, this is my pleasure. So, uh, yeah, and anytime you need me back, let me know. All right. Uh, and I'll be sending carrier pigeons and uh, psychic messages your way in case we have any more questions. Great. Awesome. Thank, Thank you. you so much, Eric. Ari. Bye bye. Bye. Thank you so much. I learned so uh, amazing amount of knowledge speaking to Ari Levich. Wonderful, wonderful designer, and I can't wait to learn more as I crack open Mythic Odysseys of Theros, uh, not Mystic Odysseys of Theros. <laughs> All right, well, speaking of uh, crafting open new worlds, let's talk to Jack Emmert right now and learn what kind of worlds he's opening up. He's got a great resume behind him. Uh, and uh, we'll discuss that a little bit as well as where the future of the MMO is going to go. Everyone, let's welcome Jack Emmert to Dragon Talk. Hello, Jack. How are you? Hey, good to see you. It's been a while. It has been a long time. Uh, in, in, the, in the before times when we both had different jobs, uh, although still similar, I guess, because yeah. we're still making MMOs. Yeah, I'm still making MMOs, yeah. And my hair probably was a shade darker back then, too, I think. <laughs> shade darker, and uh, if I remember it, it was quite uh, trim and couture as well. Yes. I think you were wearing a Much suit true. as well. I think you were, you were very well dressed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you know, it's funny how COVID really changes one's dress code. <laughs> <laughs> That's, that is very true. Uh, your public persona gets a lot more private, I guess, uh, yeah. for everyone. Uh, that's very cool. So yeah, you uh, have a long history with MMOs, yep. uh, which uh, I'm sure we'll get to. Yeah, go ahead. 20 years. 20 years. Yeah. And is that, that started with City of Heroes, right? Yep. Yeah. I started working uh, on City of Heroes in July of uh, 2000. So it is now July of 2020. And so it's been 20 years. Wow. Congratulations. That's quite a milestone. <laughs> Thanks. For a genre that's, you know, I mean, video games don't have that long of a history, but MMOs are, are pretty pretty recent development. Yeah, relatively. Uh, I would say 99, 98 is really when they hit the mass market 
uh, consciousness with Ultimate Mind first and then EverQuest. You did have uh, smaller successes, Meridian 59, Neverwinter Nights on AOL. Uh, mm-hmm. But really that second tier is kind of what elevated it. And City of Heroes was in that group with Dark Age of Camelot and uh, that followed uh, EverQuest, uh, that next stage of pop- popularity, Star Wars Galaxies. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you're 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 speaking my language. Those were my my touchstone games back in the <laughs> early 2000s. There, and it uh, is amazing to see where 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 it is now and what you're doing. So you're uh, at, a, at a at a new place, correct? Yes, a new, new company. Yes, I'm uh, I'm a uh, CEO of Dimensional Inc., which is a studio here in Austin. Uh, we operate DC Universe Online. Uh, we uh, are also uh, working on an unannounced title. Um, which I can't really talk about, but uh, I can tell you all about DC World. Yeah, and that is, I mean, I also remember, you know, Sony Online Entertainment. So that yes. is, uh, is, it, is it, how are those two related? The one you're yep, working on now sure. as well as SEO? SOE. So uh, SOE was bought by uh, a, a private individual and was renamed uh, Daybreak Games. Uh, and then uh, months ago, uh, Daybreak, as uh, part of a strategic initiative, uh, split off its game development into its own individual studios. Uh, we are still part of Daybreak, but we operate independently. That's okay. That makes a lot of sense. It's like the kind of publisher developer model. Uh, yeah, exactly. Right. Really trying to capture that spirit. You hit the nail on the head. Cool. Uh, well, I can't wait to hear what you're working on, uh, but it sounds like through all of that, you, and I see the Dungeons and Dragons uh, titles behind you, uh, you've been a D&D player all Oh, along, yeah. Right? I've been a D&D player since 77. Wow. That's a year before I was born. <laughs> <laughs> that was my first exposure. Uh, it was at summer camp in 77. Uh, the Where was that? S- hmm? Where was that summer camp? Oh, that was in the, the Blue Ridge Mountains Camp Comet. Uh, so not too far away from where Camp David was. We used to see the helicopters coming in now. Uh, and I was exposed York, right? to the... Or that Pennsylvania? Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania. Um, and we, uh, I was exposed to the, f- the first box set, the, not the basic that came in 82, uh, but it was like the sixth edition because it had to keep it in the borderlands in it. Mm. And some of the older campers were playing it. And that was kind of my first introduction to it. And then when I came home from camp, I started seeing these things all around. You know, D&D is so fascinating for, for me to remember because it had just exploded like lightning. Like within years, every kid was playing d d It was a lot like Fortnite in its day, where the, rare was the child in that five-year, 77 to 82 area and range that didn't play it. And of course, some of us just fell in love with it and never stopped, uh, like myself. Uh, but it was a real phenomenon. And mm. you know, stuff would sell hundreds of thousands of copies of this stuff. And it would just, it would appear the distribution models back then were like hobby shops. The whole notion of a tabletop gaming store, it was like the place that sold model trains. And then they had this like section for role-playing games and stuff. And uh, which slowly got bigger and bigger, right? And uh, yeah. it's just amazing. Yeah. 
It was this. It was a similar rise with you know with video game stores, right? Where at first it was mostly electronics that was being sold in those stores, and then there yep. was a small section for software and even a smaller section for games. Yeah, exactly. And that started to expand and get bigger until you know there was the GameStops of the day. Yeah, uh, yeah. And that's similar. You're right. A similar trajectory now with uh, uh, you know friendly local game stores having an entire you know thousands and thousands of square feet devoted to not just play, but, you know, shelving all these different yeah, games, yeah. games out there. So I would love to learn a little bit more about what that experience was when you saw the kids playing it at the, the, the camp. Like what, what did you think was happening? What did, what did it, what did it appear to as, as young you? Uh, it was intriguing because it was not a board game, but uh, they, the, the things that they were talking about were the things that I loved. You know, I read comics back then, which you can see behind me. Uh, and I love mythology. And it just seemed like what they were talking about were a myth, but brought to life. And they were living it. And I just mm. remember getting immediately sucked into it. Uh, and the, the rolling of the dice and, and the fact that the wolves were interesting they were intriguing back then a complicated game was sorry right <laughs> or, or parcheesi and having this rich game that was matched with narrative was simply unknown like i it, it's it's mind-blowing and it's it's hard for people today to really comprehend the first time you encounter it it's like whoa because we just take it for granted it's part of everyday life for some of us and virtually everyone in the U.S. has heard of Dungeons and Dragons at one time or another. It's a pretty damn mass market. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, it has that brand recognition that, yep. you know, I think other brands are like, I wish, you know, 90% of uh, your audience knew what the brand was and what it, what it meant. And then, and really taking it from where it was uh, to where it is now. Mm -hmm. uh, the growth of the narrative aspect of the game, I think, uh, was because really that's what D and D innovated was it, it invented a brand new style of interactive narrative that had never existed on the planet uh, ever, and yeah. it, it exploded as I said for a short period. You even saw it like an ET. You're like, oh my god, right? That's how big it was. Yeah, and, and it was just uh, commonplace at that time where it was just like, yeah. oh yeah, of course the kids of that age were playing. Yeah, exactly. What a portable yeah. hole was and all. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, what's fascinating to me though is is you mentioned like it hadn't been done before, but for me, Dungeons and Dragons was codifying something that humans do all the time, which is play pretend and make stories. You know, as uh, you're a, a father, you know, I have younger kids and they're still doing that right now. And they call it a game. They're like, hey, we were just playing this game where, you know, this was a mermaid and this was this and this was happening. And what they're really talking about is a story that they were, they were interacting with each other to create. And I'm always like, hey, that's, you're, you're, you're this close from a D&D &D thing. There's, now there's rules about what you can do and yeah. not do and, and that type of thing. And I think uh, that's, and when I try to explain it to people who don't know what Dungeons and Dragons or at least how it's really played, that's where I always start. It's like, did you play pretend when you were a kid? Well, yeah, sure. it's that, but just with some, some standardization of what, what you can do. Yeah, and I think that's the innovation because the rules can take it somewhere. You, you miss a die roll, it totally changes everything. And it's almost like the impromptu narrative where you're constantly being uh, thrust into situations where on the fly, you as a player, you as a DM need to adjust, 
right? As opposed to pretend where you can kind of fall into a trope of playing house or, or, or playing cops and robbers or whatever it is as a kid, yeah. uh, uh, where there are patterns that the kids reenact over and over. This is where, no, no, okay, now what? Now what do you do? Now what do you do? Now what do you do? And the idea of a progression, that it's not, you know, we're not yep. going to just be playing the same game sure. day in and day out. It's going to be like, all right, well, things have changed. Uh, the status quo has changed based on, you know, what your die role is. Um, but one thing that always fascinated me about, because I was, I was young at that time, but I definitely read those books and I loved the idea of simulating something that I had read or seen in, you know, say The Hobbit or, or mm-hmm. uh, some other of the fantasy at the time. Um, but I love the idea that there was this living, breathing world beyond the scope of what even stories I might have been dramatizing. Um, and that's something that I realize is also really important in, in an MMO. Like you have to have this, the simulation is a, is a big part of the feel that, that, pe- that people love. And can you talk a little bit about that and how you might want to bring some of the stuff you've learned from playing D&D all these years uh, to, to, to video games? Yeah, I don't, I might, I don't know whether I have it here. I, I, sh- I wish I thought about it, but I remember the very first time uh, th- it was published was the uh, Greyhawk Gazetteer. Yeah. And this was in the early 80s, and it actually laid out the entire world of Greyhawk. And then it listed all the countries and the cities and their populations and their backgrounds. And that was like phenomenal, right? And in a, in a, in a way, it's the very same thing with an MMO. We draw these maps and each location has a story and every character is linked to other characters and we have to map all of this out. Uh, and we try to leave some gray space for changes and adapt, uh, adaptations, but by and large, it's, it's no different. We're just writing our own Greyhawk as it hears today. Uh, and then we actually make it visually. Right. Um, so how do you, how do you let, players i mean talk to your experience as a dungeon master but how do you let players believe that there's there's something happening off screen and that it feels believable uh and and impactful to their story that they're experiencing firsthand as a dm or or as an mmo maker well first as a dm because that, okay. that that's that's super fascinating but then i wanted to get to it and tie it back to mmos eventually so my DMing style is probably different is that it's a lot of player agency. So I usually write down like the stats of critters that so I can use them and a rough idea of where the players are, what the players are going to start. But other than that, man, it's entirely up to them and it's up to me to adapt to what they're doing. And so we could end up, I could set something up where it's supposed to be you know, taking down a vampire in a crypt and he's, you know, killing off these people. But spontaneously, as we're interacting, I come up with some sort of side thing about werewolves and what do you know, we never end up facing off against a vampire. So from that sense, as a DM, I love the, the challenge of when players push and force me on the fly to respond to the directions they're going. When I was very early on, much younger, uh, in my 10 to 15 age, I would be like, well, that's a red herring. Like, in other words, telling a player, yeah, let's not waste time there. But now I'm like, no, why not? I'll just come up with something while we're, while we're uh, playing. So, I, I have appreciated the uh, improvis- improvisational Dungeon Master style as well as a DM, especially during these times where I'm like, I don't have time necessarily to prepare or you know, create annals and, and pages and pages of lore that I can access and, and give to them. It's like, no, I'll just make what I need to for the next session. And that's it. Yeah, it's and something will come up. 
Yeah, right. You know, it's just the players. The players are the greatest source of inspiration and imagination. Right. Every single D and D session, the most amount of time is spent figuring out how they're going to take down the final boss. Right. Like, okay, and you just sit back. You're know, like, they're talking out loud as if you weren't in full control of what was going to happen, right? You're like, oh, that's a good idea. I never even thought of that, right? Right. And how am I going to counter that? I'm like, yeah. well, do I need to? Or, you know, yeah, uh, exactly. Um, have you had Dungeon Masters that were more adversarial like that? You know, I know like Gygax used to have that idea that, you know, uh, it was, it was you know, oh, yeah. trying to do like fog of war type stuff so that like you wouldn't necessarily know what's happening. Yeah, and, and certainly that, that uh, I've, I've run across all sorts of DMs. I mean, they're ones who are very much by the book. They're ones that are more about rules, less about narrative. They're, I mean, everybody has, if you've been around in gaming uh, over the decades. Uh, I just, nowadays I prefer a little bit more narrative stuff. Uh, the crunchy numbers days are, are not quite as appealing to me where I was right. trying to min-max my damage. Uh, I appreciate that that's a fine play style to do. It's probably just not me anymore. I, I have noticed that it does tend to be uh, you go through phases, right? Where like, you know, sometimes you're just really loving the tactical kind of play and 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 loving to get your ranger to do 200 damage in a round and loving that. But then, yep. you know, if, there, if that doesn't mean anything, if it doesn't, you know, have a, a kind of narrative weight to it, then, you know, at, at this point in my life, I'm, I'm like you, where I just, I want the story. I want the meat of it. Yeah, and I want to know, I want to come up with, well, how did he become a ranger? What does a ranger mean in this world? Is it an organization or just happenstance? If if a person just wanders out into the woods and lives there, does he just sort of become a ranger? You know, all those sorts of things I try to feel out, especially when I'm at conventions uh, and uh, try to try to start putting some personality and background into whatever the character is and then allow that to help dictate the lore that you're talking about. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, so have you been doing a lot of uh, homebrew? Uh, are you, do you, when you're playing now, do you uh, create your own stuff or do you use uh, established settings? Uh, typically I'll take a look at, well, I've got, you can see right behind me, I'll take characters and stats and stuff so it's much easier, you know, for combat rather than me making up my own critters. And I'll take a look at, at inspirations and things like the Avernus was really cool. Uh, I've got my own. I changed some of it uh, to make it more um, uh, more Paradise Lost. Uh, oh. So and fighting, trying to get out of hell and what does hell mean and what is it and all this kind of stuff. And how it so, changes you when you're there. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. That's cool. Uh, yeah, no, I think a lot of people are, are using the 5th edition, uh, advent, you know, the big long adventure. Sometimes we'll play them whole cloth, but I think a lot of people are just picking and choosing and taking parts and being inspired by them. And I think what, what I really love about those is, uh, and I'm, whether your audience might know this, that uh, I was CEO of Cryptic Studios and we did a game called Neverwinter. Uh, and we did, uh, uh, and to this day, the content is based uh, that, that's being delivered in the updates is matched to the new updates that uh, Wizards of the Coast is doing in D&D. And so we would do... Um, what I love about these uh, campaigns is that uh, they're, they're giving a story with a beginning, a middle, and an end. It's almost like a novel. And even if I, I'm not 
playing through it. I love reading through it because it's its its, its own form of, of storytelling. And then as running Cryptic, it was wonderful because we just had this ready-made story that we could recreate in our MMO. And we'd be doing that every three or four months. So it, it worked perfectly. That is very cool. Um, and Neverwinter is doing amazing stuff now with uh, incorporating some of the uh, Baldur's Gate Descent into Avernus content. Yep. And uh, people are, are digging it. Um, and it's interesting to see, there's, I don't know if, uh, you are aware of this, but there's, there's, there's a lot of people in talking about, uh, how fourth edition rules, uh, of which Neverwinter is based on people are being like, Hey, those rules were pretty cool. And we could maybe adapt some of them. And I'm, I, it's such a great, you know, the boomerang of culture is coming at us again. Yeah, I know. I, I, uh, I remember when we started development on Neverwinter and, and we had some people who had never played D and D before. And so I ran a, a session, and I forgot what adventure I ran them through with Fourth Edition to give them a flavor of what it was like. Uh, and uh, yeah, that was fun. That was fun. It's fun. Very different. Uh, but I think a lot of the innovations people are realizing uh, were great for dungeon masters because, as you said, like nobody has time to kind of create stuff uh, on the fly. And so just having all those um, instructions, essentially, on how to run monsters uh mm -hmm. in each stat block uh was was a pretty good innovation mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um so yeah what was it like uh trying to adapt you know all the dungeons and dragons lore of the forgotten realms uh to all of your experience in building mmos uh for for neverwinter well I, I remarkably easy because you have uh reams of material uh both in rule books game books background books that, that frankly act as guides directly to the material that you're you're doing and of course in making neverwinter we had the first neverwinter nights uh um novel uh or no, uh, the first couple of games that we could right. play through and and take a lot from there um so uh we had in addition to the material, we had those video games. I think Dritzt went near there in one of the novels. Mm -hmm. um, so that act is as our blueprint. And it became relatively easy then to add our own tweaks to it. Uh, what happened and why. Uh, big thing we want to do is create some urgency of why the players were there. Um, and uh, so we added a whole bunch, a bit about uh, Primordial and a volcano, and well, I don't want to spoil it for anybody who's playing, but uh, <laughs> uh, and, and the city eight, being eight torn up and spoilers. occupied. Yeah. And, uh, so, uh, yeah. And Valindra Shadowmantle, yes. was that her name? Yep, yep, Valindra, yeah. Was that, uh, uh, yeah, who came up with that, that? Did that come from the Dungeons & Dragons team, or did that come from the Cryptic team? Uh, I, I probably came, I, I know I didn't personally come up with it. Uh, I'm sure it came from a product of discussions between the two because the D&D product team is, was so great, probably is still great and wonderful to bounce ideas off of and they always give really good direction. Um, yeah, they, and they, they obviously still do, obviously. But uh, the uh, interesting way in which you described like, oh, having some urgency for, for, for getting players to be there and things like that. I mean, a lot of that feels very similar to, to the, how a dungeon master had needs to create narrative and, 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 and bring the characters together and have something, you know, for yeah. them to do. There uh, has to start. be a crisis, right? It can't yeah. just be another day on the farm. Yeah. There, there's gotta be something going wrong. 
So what else, uh, you know, in the video game world or especially MMOs, did you did you feel like you had in the bag just because of of your experience with Dungeons and Dragons? Uh, well, let's see. Um, well, I think the experience of being a DM and the experience of playing Dungeons and Dragons for years understood the ne- I understood the necessity of world building. Mm. Uh, so uh, for a product for every game. You know, there would be an establishment of City of Heroes, the, the background and the history of the city, uh, why we chose to put Paragon City uh, where Providence, Rhode Island is, for example. Like we mapped all of this out. We created a pretty intricate system of lore explaining all the different villain groups, how things tied together. And all of that came because uh, myself and the original uh, inspiration for City of Heroes, the original lead designer on the product, Rick Dakin uh, was, we were both RPG writers and you could find us back in those days writing freelance on and off all over the place. Nice. Uh, But why did you choose Providence? So uh, Providence, Rhode Island was actually one of the largest cities in the United States for a long time, up until the point that coal was discovered. So before coal, whale oil was the intrinsic material that people used for their lamps. And then once coal's discovered, you don't need whales anymore. So Providence ends up not being that prominent. But what if there was something else that took its place? And so we, we then took, and then that's one of the reasons why Paragon City became so important, because there's more going on there underneath the surface. So the Circle of Thorns, they had a, a large uh, 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 there's an ancient city called Orenbega underneath it. So it's a center of seething center of magical energy. Ah, and so it ended up just being like kind of part of the ley lines of what was happening exactly. underneath it, right? Uh, I, uh, I wondered if there was two things that had to do with uh, that Hasbro is, is, is headquartered there, <laughs> who owns Dungeons and Dragons, uh, or if uh, I recently you know, listened to the podcast Crime Town, uh, which uh, goes into the history of Providence, Rhode Island, and the you know sixties, seventies, and eighties of of uh, organized crime. Yeah, yeah, they've got yeah, The Departed is set there. Um, oh yeah, the, yeah, the movie, right. yeah, yeah. It's a fascinating uh, place that I, I having. I grew up in in Connecticut, so I knew a lot of those stories kind of inherently just by being, you know, a close proximity to it. But it was really cool to uh, to see other people being like, oh, wait, that's what's, what's happening? And, and Providence, Rhode Island is, is a mob town? I'm like, yeah. Yeah, it's a serious mob town. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, and then it's perfect for villains as well. <laughs> uh, all right, so uh, are you playing online now with, with being quarantined uh, or playing with your family? Uh, uh, so I play with my kids, um, but I'm not currently in a campaign. Uh, I'm thinking about starting one up, but I uh, but I can tell you for sure I signed up for virtual Gen Con. So I'm signed up for all my events, or not all of them. I'm still poking through. Yeah, there's a lot to do there for sure. Yeah. Um, have you have you had any experience with playing via camera, or is that going to be your first time? It's going to be my first time. I've never played virtually before, so this wow. will be interesting. Obviously, a lot of people do now, which has me thinking about maybe starting something up. But it's always tough finding the right players and things like that, because um, uh, everybody has different play styles, and I think it's it's critical to get a group that 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 all like if it, there's a crunchy 
player who really likes numbers and, and, and min-maxing, mixing that in a narrative style campaign is or adventure, it's not so good for anybody involved uh, in my experience. So it's it's finding the right people is always tough. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I imagine it's similar to to guilds and things like that being formed in MMOs. Of like, oh, we're going to focus on PvP or we're going to focus on, you know, dungeon runs or... Yeah, exactly. Just be more casual. Um, and it's hard to do that in social spaces right now, right? Because usually you'd be able to find a player group by meeting and playing and having yeah, sure, yeah. tryouts and, and do it that way. So uh, I think as long as you approach it with uh, with that in mind, like, hey, let's do a couple of one-shots and find the right people and, and, and combine folks. I think could Well, I was thinking about submitting Myers-Briggs tests to find their, you know, personality types. <laughs> that, see, that feels too much like work. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but I've had, a, I mean, I, similar to you, I did not play a lot online because I enjoyed the, um, the you know, the physical representation. I like props. I like using physical dice. Uh, but, you know, it's impossible at this time uh, doing so safely. So uh, I've had a lot of experience leveraging my audiovisual uh, experience with cameras and setting up multiple ones with miniatures and having like different tactical views uh, so that everybody feels at least like they get a nice you know, 360 view of what's yep. happening on the, on the game table. Um, and that has elevated it beyond just, you know, players talking to a screen. So I'm hoping you have that same experience at Gen Con. Yeah, I'm uh, hoping right. so too. Yeah. Uh, so what kind of play, uh, when you are a player, uh, what kind of characters do you gravitate towards? What kind of uh, uh, stories do you like to, to, to experience? Hmm. Typically, when whenever I'm in any sort of gaming session, I'm the last person. Like, I let everybody else pick. I tend to try to pick something that fits, that's more of a, a glue than a character, a utility character. Somebody who can kind of help out, uh, but I don't need to be the main fighter. I don't need to be uh, any particular class. It's more a matter of, uh, I like being challenged to, to uh, how can I how, how can I figure out how to use this character? How can I flesh them out? Mm. So I like lots of different uh, uh, possible scenarios from that. So I, I'm afraid that's a really poor answer. It's like, well, I, I I like to see I'm a weirdo because I'd rather force myself to play something I've never done before than just fall back on the same old, same old. I mean, I don't think that's weird necessarily. There's, uh, it speaks a lot. I think, you know, as you being a leader in your, in your job, right. That you want to, I want to solve problems. I want to be the the thing that's, uh, needed to make the, the group go forward. You know, you could say that's, that's part of your personality. Type. I, yeah, I guess so. I, I guess so. Yeah. Um, I guess I, I, I'm similar when I'm, when a group is forming, I'm always like, I'll be, okay, no one's a healer. I'll be the healer. Uh, yeah, right. Or, or no right, one's a yeah. tank. I'll be the tank. Um, but I also wonder if it has to do with your, uh, job as an MMO, uh, play, you know, uh, creator and that you want to test out the boundaries and make sure each of the classes are working and, and figure out what makes them. <laughs> yeah, trick. true. Yeah. I want to find a new way to break the system. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe there's <laughs> that. that. I guess you'd have to ask uh, my DMs to see if that's what I do. I, yeah. I hope I don't, but yeah. Well, if you're going more towards uh, narrative and not min-maxing anymore, I doubt that's that's what your your ultimate goal is. Yeah, my fun part is in those situations is if there's if we're in an environment, uh, let's say we're in a warehouse uh, and I am a ranger, um, and 
I'm like, well, you know, if, if we're in a warehouse, I bet you up in the rafters, there's uh, a pail with sawdust. And if the DM starts playing along, I'm like, okay, I'm going to try to take my arrow and shoot that off so that the sawdust gets in those guys' eyes and then we're going to surprise them or, you know, whatever. I try yeah. to come up with ways to interact with the environment, to build on whatever the picture the DM is doing, and then utilize my abilities within that to enhance whatever the combat or the other situation is. I love that. I think that's, uh, as, as a dungeon master, I appreciate any time a player tries to come up with some kind of creative solution to, uh, you know, combat or, or solving anything. Because uh, it can get very samey if you're just like, I'm going to shoot and deal, you know, 1d8 damage each round. You know, something that we could talk about, or you know what, I'd like to ask you a question because it's it's sure. in the news now. It's uh, one of the great things about diversity is we're relooking what it is that there are races in D&D, right? Mm-hmm. And we're not going to just say things are evil, right? They're good and evil. And that is going to be so cool. That is going to be so awesome to be in situations which are more carefully nuanced. And what is it to be an adventurer? What is it to be a a fighter, a cleric, whatever, in these scenarios? And where, yeah, it's not just about rolling dice. Because you don't know. You can't just leap into a situation head first just because something's an orc. And I'm I'm really excited about it. It, It's one of the most wonderful things about uh, D&D is how it's evolved and changed over the years and its ability to evolve is limited only by our imaginations. And I'm so excited that Wizards of the Coast is embracing this and like, oh yeah, you know, we're, this is our new direction. I'm like, oh, this is so cool. Because it's going to completely rewrite a lot of the, the, the rules that we've been playing with. Like we always know that drow are evil. Well, now you don't, you can't just take that for granted. You can't take that to the bank. So I, I, I appreciate where that is going and I know it's only the beginning and there's a lot more to do and evolve and change uh, in that regard. Um, but I, I mean, I've always played that way. Like I never really thought, I mean, uh, that all sentient enemies are always that way. And I, I was always the player and it, sometimes it would annoy DMs early on who'd be like, well, don't these goblins have families? <laughs> yeah, to a certain point. Yeah, I know. Right? How, how I probably throughout my decades have exterminated the goblin race, right? But it's like, yeah, that, I think it, 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 there are questions that I certainly didn't tackle when I was 12. But the, the older that we get, yeah, we do look at these things and say, well, you know, there isn't such a thing as, oh, that's evil, right? So, right. I mean, heck, even R.A. Salvatore writes all of those drow books. And they all make sense, right? It's not necessarily that they're they're just Mwah, you know, like this and 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 slaughtering uh, children. Uh, well, at the same time, and I, and I think the criticism is awesome. Like, well, does that mean that they can't be villains? I'm like, no, of course they can still yeah, course, be villains, yeah, sure. and there will be uh, just as there are amongst the the humans in D and D, and the elves in D and D, and dwarves in D and D, and Duergar, and now Drow, and and yep. orcs. Like, there's always good and bad choices. Uh, that people make. I think someone said this on Twitter recently, and I, I've been thinking about it a lot and kind of holding it to it. It's not who you are that makes you a villain or a hero. It's your actions that make you a villain or a yep, hero. Exactly. As yep. long as that is preserved in your D and D games, uh, that's you know that's all that is being changed at this moment. Yeah. Yeah. Right. 
Yep. Um, and so, yeah, there's going to be a lot more uh, explorations. And uh, I hope it is, uh, you know, just to be, like I said, the beginning of more and more fun stuff uh, that is going to change the, the game because, you know, you're right. Like you started playing with one version of it and it's completely, you know, I wouldn't say it's a completely different game. It's still at its core the same game as it was back in 1977 at that, uh, at that camp. But it's constantly changed and evolved. And, uh, you know, I think we're better for it. Yep. Totally. 100%. Um, how has that been, uh, you know, just to bring this back to, to your day job of making MMOs, uh, you know, how has that type of stuff uh, been infecting how you might be working on your new project or, or, or things going forward? Because it is something that video games are also uh, considering during this time. Uh, obviously, uh, video games have been under a microscope in regards to issues of diversity. There have been some controversies uh, and what we are attempting to do at our studio, we are very thankful uh, for uh, the fact that more diverse group of people uh, than I've ever worked with previously. And we have continual discussions of what we can do, how we can do it, how can we reach out? How can we do real meaningful change? Not just uh, something for image, not just a statement, but do something that uh, moves the needle. And I think at DCUO, uh, you can see some of this stuff coming up naturally. It's not that it needs to be forced. Uh, we don't need to just put in a character because of a certain gender or skin color, we put them in and realize the game is richer if we have a diverse, wonderful story to tell that includes people of all shapes and sizes. And I think uh, that's something that we are 100% committed to and working towards. That's cool. And it's, it's uh, gratifying to hear that the, your team that you're working with is, is diverse. I think that's where it all comes down to, is making oh, sure. Oh, absolutely. The, I, the, know, the, the people I've got in the some room. wonderful people, and we talk about it a lot. Uh, you know, in our, in, uh, I'm really excited, you know, as you see, uh, well, I'll give you a good example. So we have a new update coming out for DC Universe, uh, and it's Wonderverse. So basically, it's about a council of Wonder Women uh, from all across the multiverse. And one of its members, uh, one of the, there's Bombshell uh, Wonder Woman, who's a version of Wonder Woman from this sort of 1940s-ish uh, but unique, right? Uh, uh, there's Flashpoint Wonder Woman, there's Nubia, uh, and then there's Wonder Woman, Wonder Woman. And it's not like we set out to say, well, we, we need to have, a, a, we need to have a diverse group. We said, okay, we love diversity. Who are, who are awesome Wonder Woman characters? Nubia is great. right? like just, it, and I can't wait for the day that that's, just part of everything that we do. Um, and diversity is something we embrace like breathing. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it just becomes part of the way we build all of our products, all of our games, all of our updates. Yes, absolutely. Uh, and I'm excited to hear about that. I, have, I haven't played DCUO in a long time, but uh, you know, I know there's a vibrant community around it and with the, you know, movies and excitement around comics of, uh, of that ilk. Uh, yeah, I know. We had our biggest month, our, our second largest month ever two months ago. Wow. I, think, I think this month will be like our 
four, fourth or fifth biggest month ever. Wow. And that's the game that came out in what, like Yeah, it's 10 years. It's going to be 10 years old in uh, this coming January. It's nine and a half years old. Jeez. Wow. Yeah. I remember another in my previous life, I remember going to San Diego Comic-Con for the first time and interviewing Marv Wolfman, uh, who was oh, one yeah. of the, uh, the original writers for, sure. for the comics. One of the greats. Also, yeah, yeah. He, he, was, he was wonderful to talk to. Uh, Mark Hamill was supposed to be in that interview pool, but he skipped out. Oh, that sucks. Yeah. Sad for him, Mark Hamill. But yeah, yeah I, I know. Think, I think he, he lost an opportunity. <laughs> to meet me. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, that's funny. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, there's, I wonder what the Snyder Cut is going to do as well to getting more people excited about uh, that universe again, or if it won't, if it will, you know, we'll see. Hey, yeah, I have no idea. <laughs> you, you, didn't, you didn't get a chance to see that <laughs> ahead uh, of time? Well, no, I, I, yeah, I have not seen the Snyder Cut, so I have not seen <laughs> any inside. I'm all for uh, having uh, different... I'm all for empowering artists to bring to life different visions. And uh, sure, maybe the Snyderverse wasn't what some people wanted, but I appreciated that it was a very different take than what I've seen in the comic books. That doesn't make it wrong. It just makes it different. And appreciating for the, what, what were the guts of what Snyder was trying to communicate about the nature of superheroes, about the nature of what it meant to be a superhuman and the choices, how it would impact the world. Those are interesting questions, which sometimes comic books don't cover. They're interested in covering just the heroism element, which is fine. I love that about it. And that's why I read comics. This very, uh, I read comics every day. Um, but so I'm not, I'm not going to poo poo the Snyderverse or anything. So I'm very happy that there's something coming out. I think it's cool. I'm excited for the people who really love that because I know there are some very strong advocates. That is true. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I did not, I don't think I even saw one of those movies because I was, you have to pick and choose what your media is that you can see. Yeah. You can't get it all in. And so for, I kind of skipped out, but I feel like I was on enough plane trips where other people were watching it that I felt like I, <laughs> yeah, I got the you gist of it. The anyway. yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but I am interested to see at least how a different artist takes. I mean, because that's what you're describing. Like every piece of art is, you know, from the artist, and whether it's a collaborative one like film or not. Um, and so there's no, in my mind, there's never any bad art. It's just ones that you don't prefer or not, right? Yep. And uh, I am, I'm like you. I'm interested to see how uh, that turns out both for the fans and for uh, um, you know, the future of that, that, that universe. But for my mind, I'd love to just jump in and play DCUO, honestly. To get good. That, that, We're there. That, We're that free, thing. free to play. Nice. Uh, so what are, so the, this new project that you're working on, you're mm-hmm. probably going to tell me you can't answer, but is it a fantasy? Is it sci-fi? Is it any of those? No, I can't answer any of that. Unfortunately, okay. I wish I could. I promise I will. As soon as I can, I will. No worries. Uh, I tried I'm, to I'm, the generalist question that I could. <laughs> I, I am very involved uh, in that product from the ground up, uh, writing the stories, the characters, the game systems, everything, uh, and uh, which is great. Uh, it's been a while since I've been so close to development in that respect. Uh, so it's very exciting. Uh, and of course, DCO is great. Uh, I've been very close with them too. Um, I think you know, transitioning uh, from Cryptic to Austin. Uh, I think at Cryptic, I had grown too divorced from, I was too much of an executive and not enough of a game developer. Mm -hmm. And so now I'm getting, I I feel like uh, 
I'm getting closer to the games again. And that I really, really love that. Yeah, I was going to ask because it does, I mean, CEO is in your title, uh, but it does feel like you're more like that, you know, kind of lead designer feel, at least the way you're describing talking about it. Yeah, that would be more, I would say more what I'm doing uh, now. I'm vastly more hands-on uh, than I was at the later stages of uh, uh, my experience at Cryptic, you know, being there 16 years. Yeah. Uh, I'd say the past, the last couple of years, I was more of an executive and that that probably, um, and that's all right. People grow. They they grow out of certain situations and into other ones. So just stuff changes. That's true. Sometimes you just need a, a reset. Uh, and that's true of campaigns too. Like yep, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, to bring it back to D&D, like I know people who have, you know, their friend groups don't change, but they're like, hey, you know what? I'm done with these characters. Let's move on to new worlds and new yeah. experiences and new stories. And it sounds like that's uh, what you were able to do. So that's yep. kind of cool. Yeah, exactly. New campaign. Yeah. And, it, you know, sometimes people just need a new challenge. Yes. Yeah. In, in order to grow. Sure. Yeah. yeah I appreciate that. Uh, all right. So uh, final thoughts here. Uh, if you were to uh, create a, uh, gosh, I want to say a, uh, a D&D class for the first time, like one that, you know, because we had the Artificer that just came out in the, in the fall based on Eberron. Uh, and I know this is a lot, a lot of has to do with your MMO type of stuff, but like what kind of part of the fantasy storytelling do you think uh, could use some more exploration? Well, uh, I'm going to lean on my background uh, as in before getting into uh, games, I was an academic, uh, Greek mm-hmm. and Latin. It's a whole nother story, but um, <laughs> I would really love to uh, experience and role play more uh, from the point of view of uh, Hercules or Jason or Bellerophon or um, Achilles. Who are the great heroes and how do you play that, right? My experience with d d typically is that you're, you know, a person and it's your experience that kind of makes you great. But what if you were born into a situation where you got to be great? You really don't have any choice. This is fate. And the various machinations of deities and things like that. So I think the character class that I would create, maybe it would be a race or something, but it would be some sort of half divine, half human or half whatever. Uh, but with clear obligations on both sides of the fence and understanding that sometimes those things are in conflict. Uh, I think those are great. You know, one of my favorite uh, superheroes is Namor, the Submariner, Mm. because he is constantly torn between being a hero and a villain because of who he is. And uh, to give an example in a D&D campaign, so let's say your mother is the goddess of volcanoes and she's going to erupt a volcano. And she said, yeah, you know, it's time. This volcano is going to erupt. You are half human. You're like, but there's a village there. What do I do? And then she's like, well, you know, I don't think about that. I'm, that I'm the goddess the of volcanoes. Right. Yeah. So what do you do? Like, what is your, what is your, do you try to stop her? Do you try to finagle? There's all sorts of different, do you try to evacuate the village? Do you try to get another god involved? Those are the type of things that I think would be super cool. Well, uh, 
that's pretty awesome because I've got the book for you, uh, Mythic Odysseys of Theros. So I, I can tell you right now, I've been looking at that and I was like, hey, you know, that looks right up my alley. So uh, uh, if on your recommendation, I might just hit, hit uh, my local game store uh, and pick it up. Yeah, it'll be out. Well, as we're recording this, it'll be out next Tuesday on the 21st yeah, of July. So I've been, because it's based on the magic uh, setting, a Magic yes. the Gathering. Um, uh, so, but I don't, I haven't played Magic in many years. So I really don't know that much about it. Uh, yeah, so I'll, I'll give you a quick overview as I've, we've been talking here on the podcast for the last couple of weeks, but it is a, it's inspired by Greek and uh, classical stories just like you were talking about and and there's gods and deities that are alive and visible in the world uh and they have analogs to greek ones but they're their own creation Mm -hmm. um there's in the cosmology there's nyx which is the sky and the constellations there's you know the kind of prime material and there's the underworld uh, you know similar to hades and there's Mm -hmm. uh, a god erebos who is the ruler of that and then there's um all of these ideas that it's a pantheistic a pantheistic society so you might be a cleric of of, uh, or an adherent to one of the deities, but you you kind of know everybody's got their own powers and and things like that. And uh, many of the uh, concepts in that book are about being born into heroism and what you do with that and what that story is. Uh, and so I'm excited to play into it because you know sometimes those classical stories uh, resonate so much more, and and people were um, inspired by you know the, the ancient deities and demigods book uh, as well as uh, you know myths are some of the great proto fantasy stories uh that get people excited about you know playing dungeons and dragons in the, in the beginning as, as as it was for you so getting back to that i think is going to be really great and there's so much uh wealth in that book that you can be inspired from and pull from uh to, uh, to well uh, you just sold a copy so that's a nice. definite for me well i was gonna say i could send you a copy but you know we're not in the office so i can't send it <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Uh, but that's great. I think it might be really fun. Uh, check it out. Okay. All right. Terrific. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for uh, talking with me, Jack. This has been fantastic. Sure. Pleasure. Absolute pleasure to uh, see you again. And uh, good luck and keep in touch. You too. Uh, I'm excited about uh, this new project. So give me give me a, a shout out. I'm a, still an MMO player. I've got my WoW account open with hundreds of alts it feels like uh, uh but i'm i'm looking for for a new challenge whenever you need it so okay all right great thanks right. bye thanks a lot. bye-bye that was an excellent conversation i am so happy to reconnect with jack and learn more about what is going on in uh, developing video games i've been a fan of mmos for such a long time that it is interesting to hear someone who's there both at the beginning and currently developing them now and uh, there's such social games. I think, you know, with what's going on in uh, quarantine right now, we're going to have a lot more need for that type of social connection digitally, uh, not only through video conferencing, but through uh, gaming together. Uh, D&D provides that, of course, but there is also, you know, uh, a ways to build uh, economies and things around uh, a digital universe um, that I find fascinating, and it was great to, to, to learn more about that. 
Dungeons and Dragons is out there for you. You can play it. You can do it. You can make it all awesome. If you want to have fun playing together with some new people, uh, there are tools out there. Obviously, social media is a great way to connect with uh, potential new uh, Dungeon Masters or players. Uh, but we also have a tool that we pioneered uh, around D&D Live that we're calling the Yawning Portal. It allows Dungeon Masters to post games uh, with descriptors and tags and so uh prospective players can look for them and search for them um you know it used to be based around location but right now it's more based around what style and type of game that you might want to play as well as what platform uh so i encourage you to check out the yawning portal uh and uh try to figure out how you can schedule a game if you are interested in learning uh how to play dungeons dragons or you know get into more uh, contact with 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 different wider players all over the world. Now is a chance to do it using that tool. Um, and of course, if you want to find out everything about uh, what's going on with D and D, I encourage you to download the Dragon Plus app uh, to your phones. Uh, new issues come out bi monthly, and they are chock full of previews about what's coming in Icewind Dale: Rime of the Frost Maiden, as well as even more uh, information uh, from our partners, uh, such as WizKids and what they've got going on. Uh, for um, that campaign. I love people who uh, talk about Dragon Talk online. Uh, please, if you can, shout it out from the rooftops. If you've enjoyed listening to me and Shelly interview people from the community over the years, uh, we always want to get more listeners out there. Uh, one of the best ways to do that is to leave a review on your podcatcher or platform of choice, such as Google, Spotify, Apple, uh, or all of the myriad ways in which you can listen to Dragon Talk, uh, including on the web. Um, but yeah, spread the word as much as you can. And I also want to give a shout out to the people behind making it, not only me and Shelly, uh, but Ryan Marth from Siren Sound and teams there from Wizards of the Coast. Can't do what we do without you. Um, but of course, I also want to give a big shout out to Shelly Mazzanoble. I'm not going to make her cry because uh, you know, she doesn't listen to these episodes if she's... Well, actually, she might listen to this one because she's not on it. Uh, but she's awesome and is always lifting everyone up, uh, as you might see on social media as well as in our interviews here. Uh, so big shout out to Shelly for being awesome. That's it. We're done. We don't have uh, any continuing storyline of what's happening with Drunky Two-Shoes, but we'll be back next week with uh, the ongoing adventures as well as some more fun voices and banter from me and Shelly and myself as we speak to... I'm delaying so that I can make sure and find out exactly who it is. It is someone who is awesome. They are going to tell us all about their lives. Oh, it is Kellen Coleman, a fantastic actress and a... Uh, participant in Girls Guts Glory who is returning to streaming here on uh, twitch.tv slash dnd uh, where you can find tons of great games um, if you're interested in watching some dnd entertainment please give a follow to me Greg Tito at Greg Tito on Twitter uh, I'm Greg underscore Tito on Instagram or you can check out Shelly at Shelly Moo but of course, Dungeons and Dragons is always there for you at DungeonsandDragons.com or on uh, Twitter at Wizards underscore DND, Instagram the same, and uh, on Facebook. Tons of fun stuff out there for everyone, and we want you to roll some dice, slay some monsters, and uh, learn what it means to play pretend again. <laughs>